Hey, everyone. Just wanted to apologize for the delay on this episode. The previous segment we tried recording kept coming out wrong, and we decided to postpone its release until we get it right. With that said, we are going to stay on schedule and we'll have another episode released for you next week. Thank you for your patience as we get used to recording on the road again. This episode of The Flight Diary is brought to you by Wander Disc Golf, a brand that's bred from passion for the sport and all of the beautiful places it can take us. Wander has a wide variety of thoughtful apparel rooted in disc golf and an advocacy for mental health. Find them at at WanderDiscGolf on Instagram and shop at WanderDiscGolf.com. Double Helix Disc Sports is a growing disc golf retail brand launched in 2019 by brothers Mark and Matt. They share a passion for excellence in customer service, and they've curated a fantastic selection of equipment from top manufacturers and well-designed apparel. You'll also find a large selection of disc golf accessories, including their very own grip-enhancing chalk bag, the Ringtail. Find all of this and more at doublehelixdisksports.com. And P.S., for all of you Zone fans out there, they are releasing a custom run of the 2019 Tour Series ESP Swirl Zones with their custom Double Helix stamp on top. These drop on March 26th, so follow them on Facebook and Instagram for more notifications and reminders. You're listening to The Flight Diary. An intimate collection of stories, theories, and thoughts from the world of professional disc golf. I'm your host, Brian Earhart. Joining me on today's episode is a major winner, a fan favorite, and a close friend. James Conrad is one of the few elite backhand-only players left on tour and is modernizing that style of play through his hybrid skill set of old-school and new-school shot shapes. He is quiet, unassuming, present, and kind. I'm so grateful that he sat down with me to share his stories, and I'm excited for you all to get to know more about him. Enjoy. I want to be taken back to before you played disc golf. Like before that had influence in your life, and you were just a bouncing young boy. <laughs> What were you like when you were elementary school age? Like, what kind of student or friend, like, what kind of kid was James Conrad? I don't feel like I have the strongest memory from back when I was really young, but uh, my dad was in the military for 21 years, so I, th I definitely think that kind of had a had an impact on me. You know, everyone kind of looks up to their dad, especially when you're, when you're just a little kid. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was really young, like, I'd get dressed up in, like, a little... Uh, gym outfit and I'd call it PT and I'd like run around the house so I, I definitely had a lot of energy and um, yeah definitely looked up to both my parents they were they were big big parts of who I was as a little person was uh was your mother in the military as well or my mother was not in the military she she had me when she was pretty young she was about 21 and uh, she was kind of a stay-at-home mom at first and then while I was still pretty young she went to nursing school and um, she continued going to school a lot, a lot of the time I was growing up, and she's a midwife now. Um, she actually has her doctorate in midwifery. So Whoa, nice. She's a really smart lady and, and really, really just devotes herself to like helping other people, helping mothers, like bringing babies into the world, and it's really awesome. Whoa, that's, that's incredible. 
Uh, so did you guys, because she did that, like, uh, how did that work for you all, like you and your mother, and you have a sister too, right? Yes. How did that work for you guys with your dad in the military? You had mentioned to me just in passing and, and you know, the time that we've spent together on the road that you did move a lot. I guess I've never really asked about like where you've moved, how much you moved, and like what was that like being a young kid, like bopping around all over the place? Yeah, we d- we definitely moved a lot. It was I'd say on average about every three years. Okay. And I was I was born in Colorado Springs, and we moved to we moved to North Carolina when I was really young, and back to Colorado Springs, and then let's see. Colorado Springs. I was like early elementary school a- ages, and then we moved to Missoula, Montana. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, that was like 1997 to 2000 or so. So I was about seven to ten years old. Okay. And then from there, we went to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, so I was, yeah, early middle school there. And then we spent a year in the East Bay area in, in California. And from there, we went back to Colorado. This time, the western part of the state was in Montrose, Colorado. And from there to Blacksburg, Virginia. And that's kind of where my family settled down. That's still as close to home as anywhere for me. I see. Okay. So, wow, you had quite quite the journey when you were a kid. And, I Mm -hmm. mean, it's it's fitting that you're on the road now, like, traveling full-time. But, you know, I've always seen you as, like, a mild-mannered human like I've seen you on the course I've seen you you know off the course uh obviously as a friend do you think all the traveling and like bopping around kind of like cultivated that that like kind of laid back like go with the flow kind of mindset for you like as a as a human being I think it definitely played a played a part in it it's hard to say what impact it had because it's the only only way I've lived you know um it's the only way I grew up and yeah, I think I, overall I enjoyed enjoyed moving around okay. a bunch. I thought it was cool to get to see a lot of parts of the country, and it was kind of fun going somewhere and, and being the new kid at school or whatever. And I don't feel like I was like super quick to like make a bunch of friends, mm-hmm. but I'd usually pretty quickly at least get a get a small group of friends and people I, I was close with while I was there. And it would kind of stink to move away from them eventually, yeah. but. Yeah, I enjoyed it overall, I'd say. What was your, like, what were your hobbies? I know, I know you're a hobbyist now. Like, you, you have a lot of talents, obviously, and I enjoy watching you do it, like, <laughs> execute your, your talents and your hobbies. Were you always like that as a kid? Like, did you have a lot of little things you were into? I'd say I've, I've gone through a lot um, over the years. I, I feel like I'd kind of dive into one thing and, like, put a lot of my a time into that at, at a time. Um, I've definitely been a bookworm for times of my life. I've definitely gotten really into video games at other times of my life. I've spent tons of hours juggling. Um, I didn't play a ton of organized sports growing up, but I definitely had a few seasons of, of basketball and a lot of like backyard soccer and backyard football. Yeah. And, and then I was a runner in high school, so cross country and track took up a lot of my time back I see. then. Um, but yeah. Do you remember what the very first thing you were good, like really good at was? Like, did, does, does that memory ever come to, come to mind at all? Let's see. The first thing I was very good at, uh, maybe unicycling. That, that's one I forgot <laughs> to mention. <laughs> really? That's the first thing? Um, yeah. Unicycling is kind of a, kind of a weird thing. Like just being able to do it is kind of already like very good at it Yeah. because almost no one can, but yeah, I got pretty into that like in my early 
early high school years. I think I learned before eighth grade and in high school I had like a mountain uni, a muni they'd call it, and I could like jump around on it. I could like jump up onto the bench of a picnic table and up onto the top and I've jump off those. of it. And yeah, I feel like I kind of excelled at that. And um, but there's like no one to compare yourself to in that so yeah <laughs> I, I was sufficient at mountain unicycling right <laughs> that's so funny uh, <laughs> i was actually really not expecting you to say unicycling at all that's actually the first time that you've told me that you've done this so that's that's incredible um funny enough i recorded a full podcast with joel freeman and okay. after the episode was over, he's like, oh, I forgot to tell you that I was a mountain unicycler. <laughs> he's like, I forgot, awesome. to, I forgot to tell you that I was like a really good mountain <laughs> unicyclist. I was like, how do you forget that <laughs> part of your life? Right. Um, no, I saw he did like a video recently where he played like a nine hole course on his unicycle. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah, he just like... started doing that, right? The YouTube videos. Yeah. I, I haven't seen too many of his, but I, I saw a clip from that one or something. I was like, I might have to try to beat him on that sometime. You guys should, you should absolutely have that filmed. It would be incredible. That would. And that would draw the fans in, for sure. He also didn't tell me that he was a breakdance teacher. Like What? The, yeah, he like, left all of this out of the Whoa. episode. Shame on you, Joel. And I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you're back playing, but shame on you for this. I'm glad we got to get this information out in this episode. However... And why haven't we seen you breakdance, Joel? Come yeah, on. Yeah, what, what is this? <laughs> Trash. And... <laughs> Oh, such a good guy. Anyway, um, you know, I, I ask about all these other hobbies because I know that Frisbee was still something that you did early on in life. Like you, absolutely, you came from like a Frisbee family and your father was a Frisbee player. Um, mm -hmm. what, what was it like having a dad that played Frisbee? Like most people, when they get into disc golf, they're like defying what their family did. Right. What, what was it like having a dad that loved it? It was awesome. Um, it was really cool, you know, just from being like an awesome family activity from going to the course or even just playing catch. Like I've had a, an ultra star or a lid in my hand quite a few times growing up um, at a family, family camping trip. You know, we'd have we'd have, be playing catch. And then since I was seven or so, like disc golf was definitely a, a pretty big, a big part of our lives. Like my dad dad got into it and he got good quick and got hooked I, th I think he only ever played one or two am tournaments like his his first first advanced am tournament was the fort stillicum open that was while we were living in montana and he won advanced out there and so he's like i guess i'm i'm gonna play open now <laughs> and yeah so he was always always great at it like i don't i don't think i beat him in a in a tournament maybe till i was close to 18 like every now and then I'd get him in a round, but he was always great. And it was cool just to, you know, go out like father, son. And if we were somewhere that no one knew us, they'd be like, oh, who are these guys? Some some guy and his little kid. And then they'd be like, whoa, these, these guys got some game. And, <laughs> and that kind of stuff was always fun. What was your dad's game like? Or what is it like now? Like when you were a kid, what was it like? What is it like now? I'd say it was just pretty solid all around. He He's never been one to overthink his shots. He just kind of steps up and and throws and, and gets it done. Sa same with putting. He gets to his lie and looks at it and just knocks it in there. And he's a lefty, so I, I just always remember growing up, you know, seeing both lines and, and seeing all, all the different shapes that you can see from a disc. And That's yeah, so I, interesting. I feel like he was pretty good power thrower when he was 
when he was a little younger than he is now, like through his 40s. He's, he's over 60 now, so he doesn't quite have the power he used to, but he's still got great game and really kinda good. Kind of like Heiser flippy. Yeah, really good Heiser stand-up kind of straight shots, and he's still great around the putting green. Like, takes no time, step up to a 30-footer <laughs> and just, just drain it. That's like the Grandmaster style. That's like what you expect from, like, someone who's been playing that long. They just, like, shush you off the tee pad, and they just, like, step up already, ready to go. Yeah. I love that. It's awesome. Thinking of like dads, what you say a dad played football when he was younger. You have a, you know, he has a kid and they're teaching him how to play football and they're training them and, you know, getting them lessons. And was your dad kind of like a helicopter parent with disc golf? Like, was he like trying to make you a champion or like what, what was he? Did he teach you anything at all is really what I was asking. As you were first mentioning, like a helicopter parent, like it was never a goal of his to like, I'm going to train the best disc golfer ever. Like, it wasn't anything like that. It was just um, something we both enjoyed doing and that we'd, we'd go do pretty frequently. Um, the second part of your question, you were asking if he taught me anything, and absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, he taught me, a, taught me a ton about the game, but it, it never felt really structured. Like, we'd go work on stuff or we'd work on putting or, or what have you, but we wouldn't. I don't remember it being like regimented at yeah, all. Yeah, like oh, you got to do your thirty footers today, James. Like no, it wasn't anything like that. I feel like it was much more organic. It was just we both just enjoyed going out and throwing throwing discs and mm-hmm. trying to shoot the best scores we could and going out to tournaments. Like we both en- enjoyed competing. We're both yeah. definitely competitive people and and gamers. You know, like to like to try to win, like mm-hmm. to game it. So he's he's the same way. He likes to go out and try to try to win the tournament. Like big time, like most people show up to the AM tournaments or like, you know, even some pros, they show up just for the experience, the show, the social life and like the community of the thing. But you guys were scorers. You guys were trying to be the best you could. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And not just a disc golf, you know, like my dad's a good billiards player. And so like we'd always be competitive. That's one I barely ever, ever beat him at. But billiards or ping pong or whatever game you put in front of us, you know, we're both going to play. Like we enjoy the game of it. We Mm -hmm. enjoy trying to do the best we can, trying to win like in a, in a positive, like sportsman kind of way. We're not like, man, I'm going to kick your ass. But (laughs) it's like, you know, it's more like positive, like, yeah, like great shot. And, but my shot might've been better. You want everyone (laughs) to do their best. Like that's, that's like your type of competition. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I was looking at your stats earlier today, and I saw that you you joined the PDGA in 2000, which is like that's pretty early on. Like yeah. you're almost, I think you're pretty much the same age as me. You're 30, I'm 29. Mm-hmm. Like 2000s, I think I was in fourth grade. You were in fifth grade, something like that. Yeah. And you played for the first f- three years or something. You played like one or two tournaments a year. What what was that like? What did did you get super amped to play these one tournaments a year or like what was that like for you? Like your early on tournaments? Like you said, that was a long time ago, so it's hard for me to remember really clearly. But yeah. like PDGA tournaments weren't quite as widespread back then, mm-hmm. you know. Especially when we lived in Montana, there was may- oh, maybe yeah. one sanctioned tournament in the state a year. Um we, there was wow. a there was a lot of Saturday tournaments and they just weren't ever sanctioned, you know. Yeah. I wish I had better records or could remember better, but I'd, I'd say a lot of those years we might have played 10 or okay. 15 events, just I only see. one of them might have been sanctioned, you know? That makes sense. So you were playing, you were like getting out and playing tournaments. You weren't just signing up for one and then like waiting all year for that event. No. Okay. They, they just weren't big tournaments, you know? It would be, yeah, I definitely have memories of um, waking up at, at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., my my dad, if it, if it's time to go, it's it's time to go, you know, and 
he'd rather if the tournament starts at nine, he's he likes to be there at seven. So if that's two hours away, we're leaving at five. Oh my and, god! And we'd get up and go, you know, maybe yeah. get some McDonald's coffee. And I probably wasn't drinking coffee back then, but <laughs> McDonald's breakfast sandwich on the way. And yeah, um, yeah, I've have fond memories of that back in in Montana when I was a little guy. When you were in these tournaments in fifth grade, sixth grade, w- were you already in the mindset of like, I'm going to win this thing. Like I am going to shoot the best score. Or were you like, I just remember when I was like 13, 14, I was nervous as hell to play these tournaments. Did you kind of have the same feeling or what was it like for you? I feel like I definitely started to feel that more towards high school. Okay. But when I was a, when I was really young, you know, a lot of the tournaments I'd go to, I might've been the only kid there. So yeah. it was like, I could go and maybe try to like keep up with the lady that they carded me on, on the card with or, mm-hmm. or what have you. But yeah, I guess it was, it was cool to have structured rounds, you know, where you actually yeah. keep score and, and try to do your best. But I don't think I, I don't think I looked at them too seriously or it was just, fun it, to it was just something to do. Yeah. And it really stinks that there weren't that many tournaments in Montana. Cause I mean, you and I have both played, you know, uh, Zootown open like multiple times and I've played with you there multiple times. Like uh-huh. they have such beautiful disc golf out there blue mountain is one of the prettiest you know properties to play play disc golf on that i've ever seen yeah it's gorgeous and that was at your home course was was blue mountain yeah blue mountain and and patty canyon i think were the two we played most um there may have been one at snowball too i'm not sure if i just skied there or if we played disc golf there but i actually recently found uh i was going through some of my old discs at my parents house and like the first disc i ever remember throwing was um there's two that i remember i had a blue 150 class dx gazelle <laughs> and I, I i that's the yes. first like driver i ever remember throwing i think i even flicked pretty often back then like when i was really young and um then i also remember i had like i think it was also 150 class it was a avr and it was red and it had like an ice bowl stamp on it or something those are like the two earliest discs i remember i didn't find that red one but i did find that 150 class gazelle which oh, was pretty cool man and up until this point you could have been throwing it I could have. <laughs> <laughs> you could have been changing the game. 150 DX plastic. Throwing some like corkscrew shots or something. Yeah. Yes. Could be helpful for the all backhand player. It could. Um, but I have such fun memories playing Montana disc golf. So that's really cool that you kind of grew up there and like learned disc golf there. As you got older, you said you ran track and cross country in high school. Were those your main priorities, or was disc golf kind of above that at that point? Like, when did that flip-flop happen? Like, because I know you did go to college after you went to high school, correct? Correct. It's hard for me to to quantify like that, like like the priority list, oh, okay. you know? I wouldn't say that um, one was necessarily a priority over the other. I don't think any time in high school did I ever expect that I'd like pursue disc golf as my career mm-hmm. or anything like that um through high school even into my early 20s I, I didn't really follow the pro scene at all like I knew who Ken Climo was mm-hmm. and maybe who Nate Doss was and, and some of the guys but and we made it to a few big tournaments from time to time but those were just kind of isolated things like if if the vacation my parents vacation time worked out and my, my whole family wanted to go go like we went to the memorial when we lived in Colorado maybe in 2000 and maybe 2004 or so so I played a memorial back then wow still so long ago mm-hmm. wow 
And I, I played at Amworlds. I played the under-16 juniors division. Was that the one with that crazy class of players? It was like you, Chandler Fry, Paul Uliberry, Devin Owens. Wasn't like Macbeth in that class or something too? Some crazy like amount of really good players were playing. Yeah, definitely. Devin Owens actually won, um, won our division. And then I think I was somewhere around sixth or seventh place. Me and Yuli played most of the rounds together. Oh, that, really? Yeah, we were like kind of bouncing between like second card and lead card, and we were pretty close. He ended up he ended up taking maybe maybe fourth or so. Yeah, it, it's cool though, like to come back into the scene, you know, ten years after that, 15, twelve years after that, and some of the same people, you know, your same classes playing. That's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Like it really is. I think it's so because I don't know if there's any other tournaments like that. Like, right. I, I would love to see all the other junior worlds to see, okay, boom, here we go. All these, like, people born in, like, 88 to 90 that are, that are all, <laughs> like, very solid at disc and, golf. And like, all happen to compete in Flagstaff, Arizona yeah, as 15-year-olds or whatever. It's that's cool. So, that's so insane. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Do you do you remember that, like, that tournament pretty fondly? I saw you shot, like, a 994 rated round as, a, like, a 15, 16-year-old. Nice. Yeah, well, I remember it pretty well. I feel like I... I shot that on the the course that's on the ski slopes. I'm terrible at course names, but there's there's one up on the ski slopes and then we played a couple of rounds there. I think I had had a really hot round there. That was probably the first time that like I really felt the I guess like the pressure of a big tournament, you know, like feeling like I that I could compete and that I could, you know, possibly win the thing mm -hmm. and that and like feeling that pressure and I didn't end up conquering it or like playing up to my potential in that situation but and I remember that that kind of hurt you know so like those are good good feelings though like you know the, the hurt can be good when when you can learn from it exactly I always like to ask this question especially when there's players that I know that I respect that played when they were young like I did what discs were you liking back then? And I know now you love the force over flex. You love the hyzer flip. You, you kind of have every shot dialed with the backhand. What discs were you liking? And what shots were you like really leaning into? What type of throws were you throwing back then? I feel like I've always, I've always kind of liked to throw as straight as I could. One early memory I have was from Missoula. There was a guy we played with there a lot. It went by Z-Man and I feel like he, he said something along the lines of, if, if you can throw a disc dead straight for 300 feet, you can beat dang near anyone out there. doesn't matter the course, doesn't matter anything. If you can throw a straight 300-foot shot, that, that's pretty much all you need. And I kind of took that to heart, you know, so I, I liked throwing... Specific discs are hard for me to remember, but I'd, I've definitely thrown AVRs a lot. I'm not sure how old I was when I started started going to the putter game, but for mids... I used to like, what is it, the Crystal Z buzzes? Yes. A lot of the tournaments used to like get custom tournament stamps mm -hmm. put on those, and I feel like those always flew great. I remember when like the Valkyrie and the Starfire came out. I feel like I really enjoyed both those discs. And were you always just trying to throw straight? Was distance ever like a fascination for you, or were you always just trying to throw the golf shot straight? Because when I grew up throwing straight was the hardest thing for me to even care about i just wanted to throw yeah. the craziest like flex lines that i possibly could because i was a super hyper you know young kid <laughs> but like were you always just straight shot guy not always I, I definitely went went through a phase like what you're talking about just wanted to try to learn to throw as far as i could and 
I feel like that was kind of when I was going through puberty. <laughs> um, I love that. I was like, let's see, probably when I lived in Colorado in Montrose. So I was in like a freshman through junior in high school. That's when I was running cross country and track. So I was, you know, in good shape. And me and my dad would go out to soccer fields or whatever, practice football fields and, and just take stacks of drivers and try to make, make it through the uprights or what, what, oh, what awesome. have you. And yeah, I feel like back then is when I, I kind of, kind of started to develop my long run up. I felt like I could throw farther if I like ran into my throw a little faster and um, it became comfortable enough that I started to get, you know, really comfortable with my release point, even even attacking the tee box. Yeah, that's so interesting. Because I've noticed that you take a run-up for almost everything. You don't uh, throw a lot of standstills from what I've seen. Uh, almost none, yeah. Like a jump putt into like a little a baby three-step run-up. Like there's almost outside of a scramble shot. Uh, yeah. Like never stands like still. Like a patent bro. pending. And that's just comfort zone thing for you? Yeah. I'm not sure if it has to do with my body or like how my muscles work or whatever. It mm -hmm. just, it feels like, just feels more comfortable and a lot smoother to, to kind of, rather than just trying to rotate all and like unwind all, all from a standstill, it feels mm -hmm. a lot more natural to have a little bit of forward momentum on the, on my body. I actually, and I, I, I want to tell you this because I, I think you might, uh, smile at this. I, I use you as an example when I teach a lot of lessons. Um, and when I teach, sometimes I teach clinics and if a certain question comes up, I'll bring you up as an example. Cause a lot of people ask about standstill form and they ask about, uh, when do I take a run up and when do I take a standstill? And I'm like, well, James has figured something out and it's he, like you've since you do take an approach for everything like i've seen you even take an approach for like an 80 foot <laughs> 80 foot throw and i'm like whoa this is insane um but it was beautiful and i was like realizing that because you've committed to just doing that and like approaching all these different speeds of shots with a full run-up subconsciously you're learning how to control your your full body you know instead right. of just changing like how hard you throw the frisbee you're working on that coordination at all these different speeds. So as much as I, you know, if somebody has a standstill, please throw it. Like mm -hmm. it's actually like if you commit to it, it actually teaches you some really good skills. It's challenging to throw a down tempo shot from with a, with a run up from like 100, you know, it's really challenging to do that. Yeah, it is. I feel like another thing that got me more comfortable with that is it's like countless hours playing catch, you know, mm -hmm. just throwing a lid back and forth, like, if I'm playing catch, even if we're only 60 feet apart, I'm not just going to like stand flat footed and, you know, throw it to you. I'm going to kind of be moving. I, I moved to catch your shot. Now I'm going to like kind of keep moving and throw it back. And it just feels like a whole body kind of thing if I'm moving my feet a little bit. Something again with your footwork before I move forward in your career that I, I just, the internet talks about your footwork. You know, they uh -huh. think it's incredible, you know, and <laughs> the thing that I think is just so funny Fast forward to Estonia in 2019. Remember when the, at Karevma, when they had like the tee pads elevated like two feet off the ground? <laughs> yeah. They were good sized tee pads, but they, they were not that big of tee pads. <laughs> and you, you would still start off the pad. You would hop up <laughs> a foot and a half, full approach, and then like helicopter follow through off the tee pad. There was a picture, <laughs> there was a picture of you that someone took that I'm still having a tough time finding. And if you're a patron of the show and I do end up finding this picture, I'm going to post it for you all because it's incredible. You throw the shot. It was like the hardest hole in that course. It was like that 400 foot, super hard tunnel. 
and you threw and followed through off the pad and someone took a picture of you following through but they the, the camera was just high enough to where they couldn't see the T-pad and you were just sideways floating in the air. <laughs> it was so incredible. That's awesome. Walk. How was that for you? Did you even have, like, I bet you probably couldn't think about it, you know, because of how elevated the T-pads were. But, like, what was your thought process in that? Yeah, honestly, it's it's like a weakness in my game, I think, not being able to, not being able to adapt to, to oh. conditions like that. You know, I feel like I'm... I have my best chance at winning if I just like full on attack and I feel like I'm coordinated enough and, and kind of nimble enough on my feet that I'm, you know, I might be risking like some injuries, like jumping off a tee pad like mm-hmm. that, but I feel like, uh, knock on wood, you know, it you're pretty nimble, man. It hasn't come to bite me yet. And yeah. that if it's going to give me a better chance at birdie that I might as well just go for it. Yeah. I mean, I a hundred percent like agree with you. It was incredible to watch because I mean, like you said, you are nimble. You landed on your feet every single time that you did that. But thank you. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to definitely highlight that because I think it's amazing. You know, the coordination in disc golf that all the different athletes show is so is so cool. But I guess yeah, moving forward, like you had for sure, you you ended up moving up to open eventually, and you played locally. It looked like in like either Blacksburg or wherever you were at. Mm-hmm. But you were, you're playing a decent amount of tournaments, and this was like what, like 2010, 20, like 2012, up until like 2015 or something like that. Yeah. Um, you got up to be thousand rated, like you know, between 2012 and 2015. I, I don't quite remember. I don't have the stats like right here. But were you starting to ever think about making a career out out of disc golf at that point? Like when you were starting to win locally starting to make some prize money on the side like when did that like pro feeling start to hit you it's kind of a hard one to answer like you said i started playing open pretty early i was like 16 living in colorado and i don't even think i won any advanced tournaments i just felt like i wasn't playing very well and placing near the top in advanced and i was like i just want to play against people that are better than me and i wasn't wasn't thinking at all about trying to win at am worlds or anything like that that wasn't on my radar then we moved to blacksburg and that was my senior my senior year of high school and yeah like you said i played a fair amount of local tournaments i I wouldn't play a ton but i feel like once i like moved out of the parents house and and started going to college at virginia tech just golf kind of took a back burner you know it was something that i enjoyed and that i did with my with my dad and it was it was always always fun, but it just felt a little different. Um, I didn't have have my own car when I was like early college years or anything, so it was just harder to coordinate and get to tournaments. And I'd still go play with with friends. I introduced quite a few friends, some that are still great friends to this day to the sport, and um, and that that kind of stuff was cool. But yeah, just figuring out who who I was, you know, outside of who I was growing up, like yeah. who I was on my own. Um, how did that go for you? Like, what was that period like? It was, I guess it was fun, but it was maybe not the most fruitful. Like, I was in college because it's kind of where I was supposed to be. And I was a good student in high school. Like, I was always really quick with, with math and sciences. So I started in the engineering program at Virginia Tech. I quickly realized I didn't want to spend nearly that much time, like, on the computer. Um, that just wasn't speaking to me at all. And I went into the natural resources program and, and definitely vibed a lot more with that. Like it was cool to, to learn about urban forestry and, 
and like rec management and the, some of those kind of topics. But I didn't take like a very linear path and it got to the point where I'd been going to school for, for three years and I was probably, probably still, you know, at least a year or two years away from, from a degree and I wasn't even sure which one I wanted still. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to step away from this for a while. Um, I'm still, still stepped away, but <laughs> yeah, I'm not missing it. You know, I, I feel like I'm happy with where I'm at and that whether or not I had a degree to my name right now wouldn't, wouldn't change anything. If anything, yeah. it might've just locked me into a, a job that I wasn't crazy about and mm-hmm. wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to pursue tour and, and be where I am. So a little bit of gratitude. I can, I can definitely sense. Yeah, definitely. To, to step away from school is, that's a big decision. I guess, how was that for you, your family? Like, did you have a plan after that? Or was disc golf the thing that was on your mind when you stepped away? Not really either of those. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't have a big plan. I just felt like I was kind of wasting my time and, and not taking college as serious as I should. I wasn't doing any of the networking. I wasn't doing any of this or that, that to really make the most out of it. Um, I just kind of wanted to work and, and live for a couple of years. And at that time, like I was still playing disc golf, but it wasn't, it wasn't a big priority. Like I, I still loved going out and playing, but I still didn't really follow the pro scene or like really realize how many people were touring. There, there wasn't as many touring back no, then by any means. Definitely not. And yeah, I worked, worked a few different jobs for a few years. And like I was working at a grocery store for a few years, kind of doing back like loading dock type work. And then I was doing that similar job at Virginia Tech for about a year. Um, that was probably 2015. Mm-hmm. And this time I, I like had my own car and stuff, so I was able to go play more tournaments. And I feel like around that time, I don't even know if I've ever told Zach this, but I feel like Zach Melton, he's from Tennessee, not too far from Blacksburg. And I saw him on, on some coverage and like I saw him go out on some little tours and I was like, man, that's awesome. Like that looks so much fun. And, you know, I saw him make some lead cards or something. And like, you know, I, I know I could compete with Zach. Like we were, we were always pretty even. And I was like, man, maybe I, maybe I do have a chance. And I'd started watching a few more tournaments and I'd, I'd see the people winning the, winning the tournaments and throwing shots that I feel like I could throw. And I was like, man, I don't, kind of felt crazy at the time that it's like that I feel like I could compete with them but you know the more I watched the more I, I felt like I I could do it especially I could put if up I, those numbers yeah mm-hmm, especially if I put my time and energy towards it I'm not working a 40-hour week and then driving to a tournament Friday night and then trying to compete Saturday you know so yeah that was coming up on 2016 and that's when Steve Dodge announced the disc golf pro tour and you know it was just like a five tournament tour that first year but and it was all taking place within about three months, like the summer months, June, July, and August, um, starting with Maple Hill, kind of working our way through Wisconsin and Minnesota, then down to Illinois, and then finishing up in Vermont, I think mm-hmm. is how it went that first year. And like I said, I was working at Virginia Tech, and the summers are obviously really slow. I was like, hey, guys, can I take like a three-month unpaid leave? I'm going <laughs> to try to go play disc golf a bunch and they're like uh yeah whatever (laughs) 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 yeah good luck what you're doing but yeah sure (laughs) yeah and i ended up you know holding my own out on tour like the first week of tour i actually got my my first a tier win that was tennessee states so that was like a huge confidence boost going into this three-month tour who who are you who were you playing against at that tournament do you remember yeah it was zach melton chris dickerson 
I think Dutch. Dutch was up on the lead card quite a bit. Maybe Dan Hastings. It's a stacked card. Yeah, it was some, it was some good competition. How did that feel? How did how did that first big win feel? It felt awesome. You know, like I said, it was like the first week I was actually committing to tour, and I was there the whole week practicing the courses. And I was like, man, this is awesome being able to like practice and then win. Like, sweet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't have to like work for anybody or like get told what to do. Like, this is insane. Yeah, it was really special and. Yeah, a great feeling to win. Winning's fun. Yeah. What, what more is there to say? You know, it, it's yeah. cool to to give give it all you have and yeah, and to see people that you respect and, and that you enjoy playing with, of like course. competing also, and and to come out on top is is a really cool feeling. This episode is brought to you by Delwood Disc Golf. Delwood is more than just a full service pro shop. It's a shop dedicated to elevating Chicagoland disc golf to places it's never been before. Delwood is directly located on the canyons at Delwood Park, currently the number eight course in the world on U-Disc, and home of the Disc Golf Pro Tour Silver Series event, Clash at the Canyons. It's a passionate community. It's a place to grow. It's an experience. Go check out Delwood. You will not regret it. Find them on Instagram at Delwood underscore disc underscore golf or shop online at DelwoodDG.com. It's so wild that you started touring pretty much as the pro tour started. That's a pretty wild thing to think about. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I definitely give give props to Steve Dodge. Like just the, the early marketing they put out, you know, they, they're like, this is for players. We, we want players to try to get out here and tour and i was like yeah sign me up yeah exactly you know and so it's really cool to that he was able to have that much of an impact you know not just on me but on on so many of these players that are coming on tour year after year like it's obviously the pro tours continued to evolve like he's not he's not running it anymore but i still feel like it was kind of his vision and and his baby and Mm -hmm. it's awesome what over the first like year or two that you were on tour what was the biggest like lesson that you learned like were you picking up like lessons on the way as you were not only just playing in your area the woods Mm -hmm. you were going to all the tournaments based on the name of the tournament not necessarily the course that you were good at like how was that and did you pull anything from that early on it was good it was definitely challenging at first um going to some of the championship level courses that you know i played plenty of tough courses in virginia and when I was younger, some tough ones out in Colorado and what have you, but some of them felt kind of natural to me. Like the first time I, w- I went up to Maple Hill, you know, that's a super challenging course, but yeah. I feel like it, it suited the game that I had really started to develop, to develop in Virginia, you know, being able to commit to a line and, and hit it with, with authority, mm-hmm. like, like power run through a gap. And so those kind of courses have always felt a little more natural to me, but obviously about probably close to half the courses we play are much more OB windy windy OB reliant where it's not you have to throw the disc in this shape but it's more that you have to land the disc in this location yes and I feel like that's like to me that's the biggest difference in some of the courses we play it's like is it asking for shapes or is it asking for landing the disc in a certain place yeah I still don't feel as comfortable with the the ones where you're just supposed to land the disc here or land the disc there and, and keep it in bounds. But I, I feel like I, over the years of, of playing those, I, I developed my own kind of strategy uh-huh. uh, for playing those, which boils down to just, for the most part, trying to keep the disc in between the lines, you know, for the whole exactly. flight. Like if it's a fairway that kind of 
moves left to right, then I might throw a left to right shot. I might throw it with like a fairway driver or mm -hmm. a putter, depending on the distance. But if I never have to swing it out OB and yes. I'm not going to rely on like trying to skip it in or not let it skip out of bounds, yeah. I feel like those kind of things really helped me. That, and that's something that I like really enjoy about the way you play. Like you have, because you've committed to all backhand, like you've had to build a, a special skill set because maybe Avery Jenkins was one of the big guys that kind of ushered in this new era of like, you have to have big sidearm, you have to have big mm -hmm. backhand. Like I know Stokely like back in the day was a six sidearm player, but it felt like no one really was following suit with him. Mm -hmm. I kept watching videos with him in it and he's bombing these enormous sidearms with like <laughs> DX banshees and like everyone else like was following Climo and Barry. They were throwing the spinny backhands like mm -hmm. Heiser flip. I remember even hearing that Barry used to teach in clinics to not even learn a forehand. Like, Whoa. yeah, like crazy stuff like that. So like, I guess maybe Avery Jenkins was that guy where people are like, crap, here's this big athlete that has big sidearm, huge backhand. Like, what do we do? We have to learn sidearm now. And it mm. kind of shifted how people learn the game but fast forward from him all the world champions in the past however long have been sidearm backhand you know they both right. have a world-class sidearm world-class backhand you have specialized and there's a few players that are really solid in this game still that have specialized and i guess fast forward you're on tour for a few years me and you have talked about a little bit about it the other day because we geek out every now and then, but like, uh -huh. I guess maybe in more detail, if you can, uh, if you can elaborate on it, like since you've committed to backhand, which to me has like clearly the highest skill ceiling of what you can do. Like there's a reason why all the sidearm dominant players seem to always try learning a, a backhand, mm -hmm. you know, myself, including, you know, right. since you're not learning, you know, actively grinding a sidearm, what has been your development in the pro years uh, with your backhand have you are you still learning new things yeah yeah I definitely think I'm still learning I feel like this this season especially oh has yeah been a good opportunity to learn with switching my with my sponsor to MVP um, you know I'm finding that some of the some of the shapes that I relied on most of the time maybe aren't quite as dependable with without the same disc that I was used to throwing them with you know so I feel like one of my goals Pretty early on when I when I was touring was to try to get like equally comfortable throwing like a hyzer release and like a forced over release. Yes. I think when I first went on tour I was throwing mostly hyzer releases. And then oh really? As I started to learn the forced Whoa. over, I became even more comfortable with that. You're then, incredible at that forced over shot. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like I put so much time into working that that it surpassed, you know, and it, to me it became the most controllable straightest kind of shot I could throw especially on on the open courses we were talking about mm -hmm. like if if there's a narrow fairway that you have to land it in I feel like if I can force one over and push it down the fairway then as it slows down and fades it just like lands so soft wow. that it's not going to skip it's not going to do anything crazy and if it's extra windy I can just throw extra stable and and still get the same kind of flights whoa yeah and I mean you're right if you're a hyzer flip reliant player it's really hard on tour when the wind picks up mm -hmm. because if you're used to shaping every single line that you throw, I see this with a lot of wooded players that love that like right. stand up hyzer flip, you know, MJ comes to mind, you know, yeah. when it gets super windy, he just kind of 
still has to snap a hyzer flip to get the disc to go as far as other people like, you know, Eagle comes to mind on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, and, mm -hmm. and nowadays you, now that you've learned that force over, just slamming a super overstable disc at 70, 80 miles an hour and getting through <laughs> the wind a lot easier. Right. That's the thing that I love so much about what your development, like you have the flex now, you have the stand up. You were mentioning to me like some body English type things that you're you're now experimenting with. Are you able to elaborate that for me a little bit farther? Because like I kind of got it. You were talking about like wrist positioning and stuff like that. Yeah, that was just the other night. Yeah, you were saying that like you feel like that the velocity and the spin are very closely related, and I agree for the most part. But I've played a ton of putter only rounds, and like especially if you're bagging like a really flippy putter, if I want to throw it farther than you know, say 270 feet, you know, I can't snap it too hard. Like I can mm -hmm. still throw it fast without like overspinning it yeah. to where it'll just like burn over into the ground. Mm -hmm. And that's not something I rely on heavily, but it can be, I feel like maybe even subconsciously, I, I might do that a little bit. The beast where we're at now, the in Waco is a good example of, there's a couple holes where you don't want to throw the disc fast, but mm -hmm. you do want to get a, enough spin on it to, to really get it to kind of stand up so mm -hmm. that the gap's bigger, but it's finishing to the right like mm -hmm. you want. And I feel like by like, you know, over cocking your wrist almost, like like winding it up, you can throw a, a little bit of a slower shot and get that extra spin. Because you're creating lag with like the Frisbee essentially. You're like curling your wrist and then taking off speed, but adding like all this extra rotation. Right. So that's stuff that you're experimenting with now essentially. Yeah, I'd say it's something I've experimented with for quite a long time, but I wouldn't say it's something that I'm like actively trying to put into yeah. my game. It might be something that that's just kind of in there. Like I don't, mm -hmm. I don't think form when I'm when I'm throwing yeah. much. I, I'm just kind of thinking about the shapes I want and mm -hmm. and what I want the disc to do. Like I feel like I've just been throwing so long that it's. Yeah. I could probably still benefit from like tweaking form here and there, and like maybe having a swing coach, something like that. I feel like anyone could benefit from yeah. that, but it's. There's time and a place for that, and it's not when you're trying to learn a course or when you're trying to compete. Exactly. You know, that's like when you have downtime that you can really put your mind to that kind of thing. And yeah, I think I was. Yeah, I think maybe the thing that fascinates me more, if I can communicate it more effectively, is like, you know, that feeling when you say we're playing Waco this weekend. Mm -hmm. You know how sometimes you you step up to a hole that you've played in years past but you see it in a different way. And there's like a different way that you play the hole now, like compared to the way you used to play it. Yeah. Like that's the kind of stuff that I'm so fascinated with, especially because you're only backhand, right. you know, but I understand like you are also the type of player that throws, like you said, the simple shot. Like if you can throw dead straight with a putter flat, mm -hmm. like you'll do that, I guess. So I, I, I want to, I want to move forward. And you had mentioned, you know, there, there's a, a big story that I want to hear. Um, you're on tour. You're obviously successful. You're starting to do very well. The The fans love you because of your demeanor and the <laughs> crazy stuff you pull off. Like, you have this super calm way of playing, but then you'll pull off highlight reels, it seems like, all the time. Like, huge throw-ins <laughs> or, like, huge jump putts that you send with full force. And um, you're doing really well on tour. I want to fast-forward to 2018 to a very special tournament, and I want you to tell me your story. You know, there were a few people I've actually gotten on this podcast telling me their story, their side of the story from this tournament, but from you, you won the U.S. You know, US championship, your first major. I'm guessing you've, you remember the week pretty vividly. Sure do. <laughs> Can you please, like, I, we, we've really never sat down and talked about it before. 
right? Please elaborate on that week, please. Yeah, so 2019. You was said, it 19 that you yeah, won? Okay, yeah, 2018, sorry. that's okay. 2019. Yeah, 2018 was pretty big for me, too. It was, you know, I was within one stroke of Paul going into hole 18. I ended up taking second. But um, just to have that taste of, like, being down to the wire of a major. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a good confidence booster. You know, it, like, validated the work I've done. You know, in my mind, it made me think, like, okay, like, this isn't my necessarily my forte like my mm-hmm. strength my strength at a course but i was able to come out here and, and hold my own and, and give it a run for the win so coming into 2019 you know some of those feelings were were definitely still there like just believing in myself and believing that it's a tournament that i could win and i was feeling feeling really good going into that week i had actually taken a a couple weeks off after green mountain i didn't play anything between green mountain and, and usdgc and yeah, I had a couple of really fun weeks. I went to a couple couple shows in Vermont before we left. Like we went to a show in Burlington that was Dr. Dog and Shaky Graves, this big outdoor Whoa. venue. And that was just nice. super fun. I was with some of my good friends like uh, Nate Perkins and Paul Oman. I feel like we had a couple others there. But from there, cruised south and I had heard about a, a little festival called Resonance. And that ended up being being a killer weekend. You know, we were able to camp in our vans right right at the festival. Like, we were maybe 100 yards from the main stage. So it was loud and, and it was fun. And it was some good jam bands. And there was, like, a huge field. They had kind of dueling main stages. So they had, like, alternate sets back and forth while, while one stage was setting up. The other stage would be playing. And they, it was just a huge field behind it. So I'd, I just remember playing massive games of catch with Perkins and, and Weston Isaacs out there, like just jamming to good music, just bombing a lid back and forth, like over people and people just being like, whoa. That's what Nate was telling me. Like the other day, he was telling me about this exact experience with nice. the same enthusiasm. Like yeah. you guys were smoking the Frisbee over all these people <laughs> and they were like, well, who's going to catch that? And you just grab it and chuck it across the field again. Absolutely. That's awesome. Every time I hear... Uh, pigeons playing ping pong they got a song called called horizon and every time i hear that i'm just like immediately teleported right back to that that stage out, out there in pennsylvania That's so sweet um actually crossed paths with jordan jordan kim who i'm dating at that festival for the first time we didn't we didn't spend too much time together there but we you know exchanged numbers and, and stayed in touch and then uh month and a half or so later we went to another festival together down in florida but that was after us yeah and yeah just really hit it off and we, we've been dating for probably a year and a half now so yeah that was pretty pretty awesome weekend and wow so you're like on cloud nine after this festival yeah definitely so from there there was still probably two weeks till us and i got to stop by blacksburg and and visit my parents and see some of my old old friends that still live there and from there, I actually went to see some more music in Black Mountain, North Carolina, the Marcus King family reunion. It was like a little two-day... So lucky. Two-day festival <laughs> near Asheville. Um, at Picks the Dave's Brewing Company, which is a really sweet, sweet venue. It's a brewery, a venue. They have a little disc golf course there. And, yeah, some, some close friends and I had just spent the weekend there, you know, enjoying some more music, just soaking it up and... Through this time, you know, I wasn't wasn't practicing a lot, like just, you know, taking care of my mind, I guess, like trying yeah. to 
get myself in a, a really positive or really present mind state. And, you know, towards the end of a season, you've thrown so many shots. Like, yeah. your, your body knows how to play. It doesn't matter if you take a week off or, or what have you. And It's almost better. It. Yeah, it can be better to take a little break. And if you have a little thing that you're, like, doing wrong, you might forget what you're doing wrong and then just be doing stuff right when you come back. But exactly. Yeah, from there, went down to USDGC and got in a, a few good practice rounds and then came out swinging, put some good rounds down, and I feel like some of the usual contenders maybe didn't have their best showing or were dealing with some injuries or some some mm -hmm. things like that, and I was able to capitalize on, on that, and even with a, a pretty poor final round, was able to take the win. Yeah, it was awesome. What like what was, hole 17 was, was murder to everybody. <laughs> I was watching it completely shaking, like, and I had played the event, and I was right. just like, What's going on? What is everybody doing? Like, I think Clemens was also in contention to win. Like, I think Nathan Queen at one point had a, was in contention to win. Man, there was just so much drama happening. And then, like, Clemens had his chance, blew it on 17. You had your chance, almost blew it on 17. What was, what was that like? And actually, for people who are just getting into disc golf uh, to get the significance of this, hole 17 at Winthrop Gold... And Winthrop Gold is this controversial course that the players seem to like and flock to every year, you know? <laughs> but the fans just seem to hate it. But 17 is this iconic hole. It's like 260 feet downhill, but it's this little hay bale-created island with water right behind it. And if you miss the green off the tee, you have to re-tee. And it's, out, it's an out-of-bounds stroke. And it is historically ruined so many people's chances of winning this tournament. Johnny McRae famously got a nine after having a four-stroke lead going into the hole, some, some crazy thing like that. And then you coming down the stretch at this huge tournament, your first major that you were in contention. Please talk me through this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy thinking back about it. I felt, felt confident. You know, I've, I've played that hole a ton of times between practice and all the years competing there. And... I feel like I have a overall pretty high percentage, you know, just just making the island. I had never really pra practiced laying up and then attacking the island. And your your brain does funny things, you know, in a situation like that. Like you just like are in a in a mode where you just have to absolutely believe you're going to execute each shot. And then it's like, why would I want to lay up when I can just put it on the island? Mm -hmm. And you know that that part of the brain got got the better of me and. In hindsight, it would have been really smart to even just put it forward 40 or 50 feet and open up the angle and make four really simple and then be able to take a seven if I wanted on 18, yeah. you know. But it's hard to explain beyond that. Like, I also feel like, you know, I had checked scores. I do enjoy checking scores in tournaments, and I, I guess I was up four or five at that point. And, you know, if I'd only been up one or two, like, you know, I, I feel like knowing that I had strokes to play with, like somehow made me throw it out of bounds to make it close. Like it, it doesn't really make sense, but I, I feel like there's an element of that. Like the year before when I was, I was three back of Paul going into hole 17 and it was a bit of wind in our face and, and Paul catches a little bit of cabbage, comes up short, then flicks one in to like about edge of the circle, you know? So he's looking at a four or a five and I step up and you know, throw a hyzer flip putter into the wind and just like base it, uh, just 
you know, tap in birdie. It's <laughs> such a hard thing to do on that course. Yeah. And, you know, at the moment, I needed two or three strokes, and I had a chance to get them all right there. And, you know, I was able to step up and do that because I knew what the scores were. And I feel like the opposite almost affected me negatively the following year. When where you it's had like, the lead. It's like, okay, yeah, I have like, I could kind of dick around for a couple shots, and I'm still okay. And then, sure enough, chucked it OB a couple times. Got it inbounds, kind of laid up, tapped in my seven. Wow, it's crazy. Did you at that point were you checking scores like I don't think I won this, or did you did you still think you had a shot? No, I, I knew I still had a shot. By the time we were done with seventeen, the second card was done, and I was you know still one ahead. So I was like, okay, par on eighteen wins it for me. And wow, that was you know I had a had a little bit of a. A mental dilemma there it's like do i try to play it really safe and play for par do i try to bomb one way up there so that even if i'm ob mm -hmm. i can maybe get up and down for par but i ended up just taking one of my james conrad avrs that i'm you know it's the disc i was most comfortable throwing and it's part of why i, I went for it on the previous hole you know if i can throw the disc that i'm mm -hmm. most comfortable throwing i'm just gonna do it of course yeah and it's just interesting because 17 the optimal play is righty chip shot sidearm mm -hmm. 18 a very solid play off the tee because of that downward left sloping fairway is a righty sidearm right <laughs> and you're a righty backhand oh it's your specialty so uh -huh. like the odds are stacked against you and you have to play a much higher percentage shot on, on each of those holes like 17 with a righty backhand is a beautiful beautiful play and 18 there almost isn't that safe of a play for you there is and there isn't with an overstable putter, you know, I can throw on a little bit of turn, like center cut on that hill, mm -hmm. and it's gonna it's gonna pan. You can't see my hand movement. That's okay. <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> Brian can see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's gonna pan as it's flying, and it's gonna land flat or even a little bit of hyzer, mm -hmm. kind of matching the shape of that hill, and it's yeah. it's not gonna get much ground play. It's just a great shot. To th it's like a very beautiful way of playing the hole, but it's the optimal. You know, it's a pro level execution mm -hmm. to, to be able to do that. That's why I think it's such an incredible, you know, finishing hole. So Absolutely. you execute it. And I remember watching it and being like, yes, he did it. Like, <laughs> let's go, James. Like, everybody was freaking out because everybody was pulling for you at that point. You know, right. like, every, you know, you'd become, because of the way you play being so distinct, people love the way you play, the, you know, the game of disc golf. And second shot on 18, mm -hmm. not easy. Not, not easy. Again, the same kind of dilemma. It's like, do I want to go big? But probably not because an OB on the second shot is probably going to be a tie at best. You know, yeah. it's probably going to be a five. And so I, I took a very similar shot, you know, another putter shot, trying to get myself, you know, within 100, 120 feet mm -hmm. of the pin, somewhere that should be an easy layup. And I pulled it a little right, but just enough to, to stay in bounds. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying, the, the crowd there, I felt like they were 100% behind me, and yeah. it's such an amazing feeling. Like, it's one that I'll never forget. You know, just feeling like all the, all the people watching, just like feeling, feeling their excitement, feeling their like, come on, you got this. Like mm -hmm. those kind of feelings are like palpable in that kind of situation. Yes. And yeah, it's unforgettable. Like it, it's so amazing, and to feel them supporting me and like willing my my disc to go mm -hmm. in bounds and and to get up there and. And everything definitely helped me. You gave yourself a tester too. You gave yourself like a twenty footer, like on the, on the winning putt too. Were you feeling nervous on that one? Yeah, a little. Um, or were you zoned in at that point? I'd say I was zoned a little bit, 
of a tester, maybe not because of the distance of the putt as much as like I felt like I executed the layup perfectly. Like yeah. on such a steep slope, there you got to play it a little short and yeah. expect a little, a little scoot, a mm -hmm. little ground action down towards the pin, and just kind of stuck right where it hit. And I was like, okay, well, it's not a hard good putt. enough. Good enough. That's so amazing, man. And, and it's so cool, like in disc golf, a sport that like we both grew up playing. And we we experienced the grassroots element of it, you know, the, mm -hmm. the do it yourself, like the cargo shorts, the pla you know, the, <laughs> the plaid t-shirts, like the, yeah. you know, when we were kids, disc golf was so different from how it was when you won that tournament, and it's almost like a weird feeling, and you've experienced this on a grander scale than I have because you've won these tournaments, but just the responsibility of being a pro athlete now it's like whoa i make people feel a certain way yeah which is really do you enjoy that element of of disc golf yeah i do it still kind of catches me off guard sometimes yes. you know people will give you like sometimes such a heartfelt compliment where they're they like say what what kind of an impact like disc golf or me specifically has had on their lives and it's it's incredible it's like you know i'm just out here doing my thing like throwing frisbees mm -hmm. throwing discs um, competing and that, that can be so inspirational for people or like help people out of maybe a, a dark time or yeah. something like that is something I'm not sure I'll ever get over. You know, it's yeah. really special. Yeah. I, I mean, dude, I, I agree. That's why we're both still here. I think like the moment fans come back, I think it's going to be such an amazing experience because everybody's wanting to come back and experience the excitement of going nuts, you know, for, for crazy shots or for drama, like, Man, I, I just, I love that you're here and I love that you are a part of this, I would call it a pretty golden era of our sport right now. We're in Waco. There is a van village in, the, <laughs> in this parking lot of all these amazing, motivated, you know, driven people. Um, man, I, I appreciate you being on the show, man. I, uh... The Flight Diary is edited by Lindsay Rodans, music by Johnny Darge. We are still in the beautiful state of Texas, wrapping up this Texas swing of the tour. I am going to be commentating for FPO in Belton with Gatekeeper Media, and then I will be competing at the Texas State Championships. With that said, lots more episodes to come. We will see you next time.